I am your host, and today I'm being joined by Hannah Gaze, author, uh, researcher, master, mi- sorry, mistress, mistress of what? What is your mistress degree? Uh, the- in? God. Theological studies, but yes, also God. <laughs> so, so mistress of God, an all-around wonderful person. Thank you for joining me. Thanks Anna. for having me. No, it is absolutely my pleasure because the people demand content, and who am I to deny them that? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. No one that's it. But no, no, I, I'm joking. I'm joking. I wanted to have you on a while ago, but obviously you were busy um, doming God. And so I couldn't have you on, which obviously that's an important work. It's important work. But it seemed like the time was right because you just published, and by just I mean within the past few months, two articles that are pretty well within my wheelhouse of interest. The first is your piece in, well, I mean, the first literally chronologically, it was your piece in Splinter, uh, rest in peace, you know, all right. Peter Splinter. Leaked emails show how white nationalists have infiltrated conservative media. The title is not, I'm going to be honest, not very catchy, but it's very, you know, explanatory. Uh, And the second is your piece in The Baffler regarding the 10-year anniversary of the Tea Party. The the piece in Splinter is about the alt-right and kind of the rise of the alt-right and its infiltration of theoretically not reactionary or sort of normal mainstream conservative media. And the Tea Party piece is obviously about the 10-year anniversary of the Tea Party. So I think we should move chronologically and talk about the Tea Party piece first. Whenever I do interviews like these, I assume that no one can read. I know I can't read. How about you just give us a brief kind of introduction to your piece in The Baffler? I cut wind of this uh, 10-year anniversary of basically the original major uh, DC Tea Party rally way back in 2009. They were doing a reboot, supposedly, um, in mid-September that really ended up just being a lame rally lasting about, I don't know, three hours. Uh, It was thrown by the Tea Party Patriots uh, called Stop Socialism, Choose Freedom. And it was on the Capitol lawn, uh, and about 100 people came compared to... The thousand that showed up ten years ago to show support for the Tea Party, um, and it was really all of, it, it. It's hard to describe, really, in a, in a way, because it was just old people standing on a on the Capitol lawn, uh, trying to show their support for a movement that had really been taken over by Trumpism. Um, so to try and make things more exciting, I tried to do things like take a selfie with Ted Cruz, who was probably the most prominent speaker they had there. That didn't go well. Um, but yeah. I want to warn against, just before I sort of question you about the specifics I'm interested in, I want to warn against standing too close to Ted Cruz. Um, basically, I, I assume that he's radioactive, uh, mainly because he kind of looks like, so I need you to, I need you to like walk with me down this pier because it's, it's kind of a weird analogy or simile or metaphor. I don't know the difference. A chiasmus? What is anti I don't, I, it's not important. I'm not a, I'm not a anti-metaboly? Fuck. <laughs> That's a little bit of that's a little bit of semiotics humor for my uh, linguistics nerds. But no, he looks like a wax statue that has been animated with like dark magic, but like magic with a K, magic. Uh, and it's also slowly melting, and the wax is made of like human semen. Uh, that is what Ted Cruz looks like, and somehow he is still around even though as you mentioned the tea party has kind of become defunct and that sounds like so weird to say because 10 years ago like i remember being 
in college, just starting college in 2009, the Tea Party like around that time and for the few years after, maybe three, was like the biggest force in American politics. You couldn't turn on the news. You couldn't like read an article about the, the you know the way the you know political world was operating without some kind of mention of the Tea Party getting either their way or enacting some kind of pressure from the quote-unquote grassroots on the establishment, right? Because that, that's something you mentioned in your article. This was ostensibly at the time, uh, you know, a, a spontaneous grassroots movement of patriots and uh, conservatives who were rising up against the government in the wake of the 2008 housing crisis, the Obama administration coming into power, and the Wall Street bailout. And uh, again, at the time, the idea of the homeowner bailout and you know Obamacare. So, like. 10 years later, they are largely gone and not really talked about, but only because they won. Yeah. Right? Like, they kind of won. Yeah. And they won, like, to a kind of crazy extent. Um, I mean, they they occasionally would throw out these... Uh, I mean, they would occasionally throw out these, like, praises of Donald Trump and, like, how they finally had a guy in the White House. But especially coming from Mar- Mark Levine, who was kind of their figurehead at this rally and is still kind of, like, their main voice um, on talk radio. I mean, he claimed for a while to be a never-Trumper. Ted Cruz, of course, had his own delightful run-in with Trump. Um, and both of them were basically just bending the knee. Well, I mean, honestly, I think that like that speaks to their politics, right? Ted Cruz, you know, was obviously, I would say, Trump's main opponent in the 2016 Republican primaries. He was the one who presented, I think, the biggest challenge to a Trump-like figure because despite having politics that in many ways at the time seemed even worse than his were, like Trump's were, like I think that at the time I was watching Republican primary debates, uh, they were a incredibly funny and I don't have any kind of, you know, guilt by still admitting like that. That was some good television. I can see why people watched it. Um, but there was this, I think it did represent this kind of battle of the soul or not battle for the soul because that kind of battle was over as it turned out. But it kind of represented the last vestiges, I think, of the Republican Party's ability to couch their, you know, ex- their racist under their racist uh, animus and just general white grievance politics that you know forms the core of a lot of conservative mentality in a more palatable way for the mainstream media right i think that if, if you had a ted cruz a, a ted cruz candidate he probably might have he probably would have still won uh versus hillary clinton but we wouldn't have seen the rise of so many conservative media people who framed themselves entirely in opposition to Ted, a Ted Cruz presidency, where now you have this entire, I guess, again, fringe or population, whatever you want to call it, of anti-Trumpers who are still longing for the days of the Ted Cruz, just as racist, maybe more racist, but more media savvy in the sense that they know how to couch it racism. Yeah, totally. One thing that definitely struck me also at the at this particular rally was that the Tea Party was really explicit about their racial animus. I mean, if you just kind of looked at the way they would talk, at least in my opinion, they were pretty explicit. I mean, I could, I th- academics have often described it as kind of racial resentment, so less overt per se. Um, but compared to what you would see in a lot of the conservative movement, they were really, really brash. Um, and they had the same kind of, it served, I mean, there was uh, two academics that compared it to like, 
like a bridge to Trumpian bombast, um, which I think is definitely accurate and really not much change to a certain extent. Yeah, I can see that. And I guess I would also just add to the Ted Cruz part. I think that the, you know, the lack of, you know, Ted Cruz bending the knee, Mark Levine bending the knee is like, I think it's indicative of a kind of savviness that they kind of realize that they won too, if that makes any sense. Like they, like you do have this population of never Trumpers. You have this population of people who have kind of still longing for the days of the, you know, pseudo philosophical, pseudo histo, pseudo scientific conservatism of, I guess, you know, William F. Buckley, but people who are like Ted Cruz, who are like Mark Levine, they can understand, like, they're not gracious winners, but they understand that, like, this is a win for them, you know, like, this is a win not only for their, the Republican Party at the electoral level, but for, like, their type of politics, the underlying, the underlying uh, core of what their politics are, where, like you mentioned, there is this racial animus at the core of a lot of Tea Partiers, but I think it's worth, you know, I think it's worth acknowledging that there might not be a conscious racial animus amongst many of them, because we do have a society where a lot of our memes and media and political rhetoric is deeply steeped in racial animus or sexist re- animus or homophobic ram- animus or any kind of bigotry, xenophobia. But that's not the same thing as saying that we have a lot of people who are explicitly self-conscious bigots, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the, that kind of, there will always be at a tea party, you know, people like Ted Cruz, people like Levine and these movements, a core of like, I'm an explicit bigot. I know I'm a bigot. I know I'm a racist. I know how to hide it, but I know what the core of my politics are. And then you'll have people who kind of circle around them, you know, even some of the never Trumpers too, who are ostensibly smarter, who have more media positions who are like, actually, I think that my, I think that my conservatism, I think that my neo-reactionary reactionary beliefs are actually more complex than that, but really it's just an onion with layers, right? So, you know, I think that, I think that you make a good point in your article that, hey, you know, like the racial animus has been toned down, not toned down, but it's largely gone because there is no more Obama, but that was never the entirety of how they self-conceptualized. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, they they tried to at least frame a lot of it through economic arguments. So, it would, I mean, the usual Republican argument that, oh, well, look at all these minorities who are just taking, just taking and taking for the government. Uh, but it, it, it doesn't have to do with race. It has to do with the fact that they're not working. I mean, the Tea Party took that up to 11. And then Trump, I guess, in a way, took it up to like 20. Um, I love taking from the government. And I love not yeah, working. Same. I per, per, personally, I mean, that honestly, it's it's weird to me that they think that's a bad thing. But really, I think that you make a good point in your article. They think it's a bad thing when I do it. <laughs> but I mean, but I, I, like that's true, right? Like there, there there is a bunch of special pleading that goes on in these groups about the difference between Obamacare and socialized medicine and uh, handouts to people who don't deserve them, and then stuff like Medicare and Social Security, which are handouts to people who do deserve them largely largely speaking to the age i think of the average tea party at this point yeah i mean especially the the age at these events like it was an event that was on a thursday and the only people who can really come to that kind of thing are people who don't really work um and it was mostly like 50s to 60s i would peg them at maybe some people in their 70s uh which yeah 
I mean, you, you kind of heard what you were you would expect from that demographic of conservatives, most of whom weren't from D.C., um, interestingly enough. It's well, like, I mean, they can't live in D.C., too many blacks and queers, to be honest. <laughs> they, have to, they, have to, they have to migrate in from some of the other, like, you know, further suburbs. Yeah, yeah. Not, not even, though. There was a giant, there was a giant group from Minnesota. Ooh, yeah. A bunch of Palin heads? Yeah, I, gu- I guess. They just decided to take a small vacation. I mean, they had to, right? I mean, frankly, uh, who else is going to defeat socialism and maintain American freedom but a bunch of, I don't know, septuagenarian uh, Minnesotans? Exactly. As an avowed socialist, the only thing that makes me more afraid than not taking money from hardworking white people is... 70 year old uh people in their senescence coming to march towards my towards my house but i think that's a good i mean that's an interesting point that i just raised and it framed as a joke kind of a bad joke um <laughs> like it's interesting how it has transitioned in the wake of obama because obama you know for better or worse I, he's no darling of the left he's no darling of socialism or socialism right i would hope not but a large part of the tea party movement was just like uh, weird, not irrational. We know what you know. We know what the rationality was, but a weird oppositional movement to what they felt Obama represented, which was socialism. It was it was it animated them, right? So not only did they kind of win in terms of a Trump presidency, in terms of a rollback of a lot of, or rather, uh, in terms of a uh, Trump presidency and a lot more explicit racism becoming the norm, but. They, there's no longer the animating force of Obama, so they had they've had to transition into a, a less coherent target, which is just like socialism. And I have a hard time believing that they kind of understand what socialism is in any real way. But you were there, like what? Like, can you give me kind of a rundown of what people seem to be concerned? Like, what what is the modern Tea Party concerned about? Like now that they don't have a Kenyan Muslim uh, socialist Islamist president uh black as night nation of islam uh louis farrakhan disciple as the <laughs> leader of america what is animating this you know the the dregs of this movement like does like what is keeping this zombie movement going it's hard to say because the the main thing that was really keeping them that they kept plugging was socialism and the democrats are socialists but they didn't seem to be they weren't really able to define socialism um so it went all over the place so there was one probably the youngest speaker was this uh rel- like youth activist um, 97 years old <laughs> <laughs> yeah very 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 a rising star. Um, no. This youth activist, Newt Gingrich. Uh. <laughs> exactly. Um, but she was telling this this story about like how when she was in college, one of her sorority mates uh, had a flag. It was like a communist flag. I don't know where from specifically, but then also had a poster that Jared, Jared Holt in Right Wing Watch pointed this out. I can't take credit for it, but it's I think what she what he thought what she was describing was that poster that you see of like Marx, Lenin. Um, like Stalin, uh, all of them with like party hats, and it, then the, it's like the Communist Party. Um, and it, it's it's a joke. Oh, I, know I what mean, you're you can buy about. it on like I, I on Amazon for like, ten dollars. Like... Yeah, yeah, and she apparently had that in her room, but I... it was terrible. <laughs> but like that was their conception well, I mean, of what I, it honestly, was. Honestly, I don't. 
Oh, go ahead. I mean, I don't know what you. I was gonna say I don't know what you really do when you're standing in front of a crowd of like old people who have come to this rally to essentially just be frightened into action uh, when there's really nothing to take action on, right? Again, yeah. you know, your piece lays your your piece lays out the origin of the Tea Party, and it kind of had its big. I don't know, flare catalyst event when I think with Chris Santinelli, I, I don't watch the NBC, uh, uh, Rick, Rick Santinelli, Santinelli, CNBC, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, kind of gave uh, nomenclature to a rather, he reified it slightly when he went on this kind of tirade against the Obama administration on his CNBC show uh, back in 2009-ish uh, regarding like the I- very idea that at the time Obama was flirting with bailing out homeowners instead of bailing out banks, right? Uh, of course, we know that that never really happened. Uh, yeah. But it, like the very idea of that was enough to ignite the fire of the CNBC because God forbid that poor people had housing. Um, that would <laughs> be the, the that'd be the death of America if the homeless were housed. Uh, who would we uh, complain about smelling up our public transportation? But it it feels like without the existence of an Obama like figure at the head of America, the Tea Party in some of these other like us versus them movements who are not necessarily ex- not necessarily self-consciously or explicitly racist are having a hard time finding something to catalyze around because Antifa is just it is it's an acephalous movement really there is no like you know there's no person to say hey like look at this guy he's th- he's doing some shit you gotta you know fight him it's just it's a bunch of like people in black masks that yeah it's frightening but it's not it's not so much it's harder to coalesce around it was really strange because, like, I mean, they had the boogeyman of socialism, but that meant anything from Antifa to DSA to college students with posters to the Democrats. Um, but interestingly, I mean, they didn't talk about immigration all that much. Uh, Mark Levine did a little bit. And that, I mean, that's, of course, the big Trumpian boogeyman. Um, but it almost, at least at the time, it was perplexing because it was like, well, if this is if they, Trump really inherited the movement, then why aren't they touching on this? And it kind of struck me later on that, like, well, maybe they are not talking about it because they know that they won that fight. Even if you are on the edges of the far right, you know, if you're sort of flirting with that kind of mentality, that it's hard to pretend or hard to get behind the idea that, well, no one's talking about the immigrant crisis because even like you said, Trump is on TV talking about it, right? Like Trump is on TV talking about these things. So there's nothing really to be said that is not other than agreement with the the head of the country, which I think, you know, it for better or worse, it creates uh, it, it kind of kind of pours a bucket over the, the fire of these kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, they yeah, they have their guy in the White House and Mark Levine, Mark Levine or someone else said that at some point. And it was like, OK, yeah, you don't really need to do anything. Yeah, yeah I mean, I guess it's just, you know, it's one of those things that at this at, on the surface, it seems like, you know, you have a you have this big march and there's 100 people there and like you're looking at the remnants of the Tea Party movement. And it's easy to frame that. like Oh, ha ha ha. That's sad. But if you kind of take a macro look at that, it's like, oh, but yeah, like, of course, the movement's over because they won. They're like you know for better like they were never really a grassroots they were always astroturf they were never really counterculture despite what i guess they kind of framed themselves as because you know there's nothing more cultural in america than like fucking reactionary bullshit but the ostensible 
presence of those themes and the presence of that like animating force is just not there anymore and that's because they 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 won they were like what was theoretically a countercultural fringe movement within the republican party at the time uh took over the republican party and then took over america and i would say this you know i'm curious at to your opinion because for a while after the Tea Party, maybe it feels like 2012 or 2013, there was a, a desire for a similar movement on the left, right? There was a desire for, say, a Tea Party-esque leftist grassroots movement to take over the Democratic Party in the same way that the Tea Party took over the Republican Party. Um, and it just never fully materialized or ever really happened. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on why that might be, since you spent a lot of time talking to Tea Partiers and thinking about this for your piece. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest reason why it probably didn't happen is because of money. I mean, the really only partially told story about the Tea Party to a certain extent, at least at the time when they were kind of coming for, is the fact that like so much of it was bolstered by the Koch brothers and basically conservative institutions, like these massive, massive conservative institutions that um, saw it as an opportunity uh, and also kind of helped catalyze it initially. Um, And the thing is, like, you just don't really have that on the left. I mean, we don't really have billionaires who have these massive institutions that can just, like, go into full force, like, whenever at the drop of a hat. Um, It's even to a certain extent, you don't really have that among liberals. I mean, I guess you kind of have people like, I mean, you have you have institutions like CAP. um, You have people like George Soros, who have been instrumental to like funding liberal and kind of left leaning causes. But as far as like the more DSA socialist or even like anarchist left, there's there's not really anyone who could do that. And I think that's really the thing that's holding us back. And to a certain extent, like, I mean, yeah, that's it's a good thing that we don't have that, that we're not like at at the whims of these rich billionaire assholes. But at the same time, it does make actual like national uh, movements hard to catalyze and get that kind of effect. That's an interesting point. I always thought that George Soros money was like, well, A, it's an anti-Semitic meme, obviously. Yeah, uh, yeah. Largely perpetrated by the right. But also, like, the, in the money, insofar he does give money to leftist causes, I always felt like it was being funneled towards, like, non-profits. Yeah. Like, from my perspective, like, I always felt like, you know, he had a lot of money in terms of, like, funds and fellowships and things going towards, like, think tanks and non-profits. But those two kind of fit into what you're saying. Like, those are are not particularly amenable to leftist insurrection either, right? For better or not for better, worse for worse, actually, you know, places that take his money, like, you know, think tanks or nonprofits organizing around prison, at, you know, prison or criminal justice reform, uh, sexual reproductive health, uh, women's rights, uh, race, you know, racial justice, they have a love hate relationship with grassroots movements as well. And I'm glad you brought up the money issue because whenever we talk about like why the left hasn't had its own tea party, I mean, well, Netroots Nation comes up to Netroots because that was kind of supposed to be that for a little bit. And then they just became like a convention and they became like a convention in a blog space. And that, that kind of just sort of fell apart. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not lying. Like there was like a year or so where people were, oh yeah, Netroots Nation is going to be the kind of liberal uh, reaction or liberal version of the tea party. And it just became more, more or less a nonprofit industrial complex scheme right yeah. and the money that they got didn't really go towards 
And so I guess my question to you as well is in thinking about the rise of the Tea Party, you know, at the time, again, I, I was it was 10 years ago now and I was 18 years old. Uh, God, I've gotten so I've gotten so old. Um, I was eight, I was 18. Uh, like there was kind of a big hullabaloo about the, the Republican Party establishment not being too amenable to the Tea Party, right? We know the Tea Party did, un- Tea Party primary candidates did unseat a lot of establishment Republicans. I think what John Boehner was unseated by one because he didn't go home to, can- like, I mean, I think of John Boehner, Eric Cantor, it's been a, it's been a long time, you know, uh, Paul Ryan was kind of rode that wave of the Tea Party. Ted Cruz rode the wave of the Tea Party. But there was a lot of hullabaloo about the Republican Party not necessarily being in establishment at the time, not being in lockstep with the Tea Partiers and some of their more crass, less skillful rhetoric in terms of immigration and uh, the government in terms of the public sector, right? Even if, but I think the difference, again, between that sort of leftist, left, why a leftist insurrection doesn't exist and why the right kind of better along with money is because despite there being kind of a resistance to the Tea Party itself, the underlying ideology they represented was one that the Republican Party establishment had been stoking for a very long time in in various ways. You know, we, we know that the, 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 the Bush administration touted itself or Bush during his campaign touted himself as the everyman. And, you know, he's the guy you want to have a drink with. Same with people like Reagan, like these sort of very everyman crass you know, bro-y uh, type figures kind of paved the way for the Tea Party where the, the Democrats, they feel like the, the, I feel like the center-left liberal kind of establishment is just as antagonistic in many ways to the existence of a leftist insurrection, but not only in the political and electoral sense, but also just like the underlying ideology is there's a schism there as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think especially if you look at kind of like the reactions of Democrats to DSA, um, you definitely see that. I mean, that's probably the closest, I guess, we have to a kind of like good grassroots leftist movement right now. And there's just been so much skepticism and animosity animosity about them, despite the fact that like, I mean, we have AOC now. I mean, that's huge. The fact that what AOC did was massive. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting that like, been fr- I mean, frustrating, but just how stubborn centrist Democrats can be about, look, we have momentum with this thing. Use it. Um, and hopefully they will eventually. But oh yeah, and of course there was like Obama for America too. Like that, I mean that if we're going to talk about like contemporary rather movements that were contemporary with the Tea Party that were kind of far leftist or at least ostensibly you know to the left. Like I would say that the the best analogy would be Obama for America. But we saw what happened with Obama for America, where like the Tea Party managed to take over the Republican Party through a series of primaries and grant you know, and astroturf money. Obama for America kind of got entirely subsumed by the uh, Democratic establishment and dispersed. That energy was like dispersed into the ether. Yeah. And it just, I think part of it too is just um, liberal and left-leaning institutions, they move a lot more slowly. And that's been to our detriment so far. Um, I think in, in the long term, it's probably better, but these conservative institutions can just move so quickly and just abandon basically whatever guidelines they want and are perfectly happy to do whatever they need to win. That's a really good point. But let's pivot if you know, quickly, if clumsily to your second piece and move from the implicitly racist 
movements to like the explicitly racist figures of the alt-right. So your second piece is in Splinter and the name I won't repeat again because I have forgotten it and I've lost a tab on my computer, but you can say the name. Uh, leaked emails show how white nationalists have infiltrated conservative media. That, that is quite a mouthful. <laughs> Let's talk about the, uh, the piece itself and the leaked emails that you uncovered. Yeah, so basically, I got access to this small private listserv that was called Morning Hate, and it was headed by a man who's relatively well-known in D.C., conservative, especially journalistic um, circles, well, conservative and libertarian, um, named John Elliott, who worked for all of these just kind of like stayed relatively normal um, think tanks in D.C., like the Institute for Humane Studies. Um, he ran their journalism program, so a lot of people... Uh, know him through that. He's basically, that program helped train a number of journalists who are in relatively prominent um, and very prominent uh, positions right now. Um, He essentially founded this small listserv, and then the rest of the people on it were relatively young journalists and kind of think tank types. Um, Basically, what Morning Hate was, was a means for them to get out racist beliefs and just kind of like essentially shitpost so to speak um when not all of them could uh one of the other main figures who i looked at in the piece is named jonah bennett who currently runs a anti-liberal um magazine out of california called palladium and basically yeah i mean they would use these ridiculous code words to supposedly mask their racism um which of course <laughs> did not work uh but it was pretty much like straight up like praising hitler um pre i mean just like really disgusting stuff about like jews on the holocaust um yeah and but the most important part of it was that they were using this small listserv to essentially figure out ways to coordinate trying to sneak their beliefs into conservative conservative institutions so in the case of Jonah Bennett what he would essentially do was spin daily caller uh, where he worked, uh, spin daily caller coverage to make it sound favorable to the alt-right, but not super obvious, um, which is a trend that we've seen also with people like Scott Greer, uh, who you also used to work at the Daily Caller and was outed about a year ago um, for being the managing editor of Radix Journal, uh, which is um, the main publication put out by Richard Spencer's National Policy Institute. And yeah, I mean, John Elliott was also at his new position that he was fired from right after the piece came out. Um, He was trying to basically get interns to read books like Camp of the Saint um, and kind of learn about Holocaust denial. And yeah, I mean, they... They really went at it. <laughs> I mean, can you uh, tell our listeners what camp is real quick? Because I'm sure many people have not heard of it, even yeah. though it is kind of like canon, canon literature amongst white nationalists. Yeah, so Camp of the Saints is actually pretty important because it's a book that has um, united both white nationalists and also a certain type of conservative. Um, so people like Rod Dreyer cited a lot. It's a French dystopian novel. Um, that basically it's from the 1970s and it basically tells this story of like what happens to Western civilization when mass immigration um, comes from basically parts of Africa, the Middle East, I think, um, to 
essentially destroy quote-unquote western civilization yeah, i mean i think it's a good point that you mentioned that it's it's like by both white nationalists and sort of more mainstream conservative pundits because in some senses like the difference there is one of degree right you know they 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 kind of identify the same i want to say the same cause of what they consider to be the decay of western civilization or judeo-christian value or whatever in the you know in the immigrant right you know like in the the immigrant from the global south which they position you know both from reading this book and also just broadly speaking even if they aren't aware of the even if they haven't read the exact book themselves like this view of the glo- the migrant from the global south as the you know the main I would say vehicle through which like globalism with like three brackets or three parentheses is attempting to destroy Western civilization uh, as opposed to, as you know, I think that on the left, we see migration through like the proper lens, which is that, yeah, you know, these people are not the main actors of globalism as again, like, or rather the main weapons of a globalist cabal to destroy, you know, Western civilization, like they're the main victims of neoliberal extraction of wealth, you know, global extraction of wealth. It's like, like that's the main driver. Like they're not they're not the primary antagonists in the story. They're the primary victims in that interplay you're noticing is missing uh, a variable which is like capitalism and global neoliberal extraction of wealth and also just like global neoconservative destabilization of countries. Yeah. Um, but I think you make a good point insofar, both in the piece and also just when you were summing up the piece, obviously, um, about the, well, first, A, all of their policy institutes have either incredibly sinister sounding names or incredibly mundane sounding names. Um, the, the Center for Humane Studies is some like Cobra Commander shit. It's like, I would never, like, that just, that sounds evil. Maybe, maybe I watch too much fucking TV, but that sounds evil. Like that doesn't sound like something that, produces good humane studies it's not like something that like that you you find that they have a tenth sub basement where they do human experiments but in this case they don't have a tenth sub basement where they do human experiments they just like they promote like racist propaganda yeah well i mean the institute the institute for humane studies actually is just more of like a i don't know how to describe them i guess they're more like almost center center leaning libertarians um, so like a febophiles not pedophiles <laughs> I'm sorry. I, first of all, I'm sorry that like I'm I'm sorry to myself and my listeners for like for the fact that I know the difference between that because you just hear it, you just hear it so often that you eventually like understand that there is like a distinction there. But again, it's a distinction without a difference. It's a distinction that you only only pedophiles make. But no, the point I was trying to make was this. I think that your piece makes a good point and sort of articulating the truth about the modern, essentially the modern white nationalist, the modern racist, the modern neo-fascist, the modern neo-reactionary, because there are differences there, right? You know, I, I, I made the joke about libertarian, like left-leaning libertarian, or like not left-leaning, but um, like slightly more center libertarian versus slightly far right libertarian in terms of like the difference in their preferred age range. But really, ultimately speaking, there, there are distinctions there, but they're ones that we have to be careful about making because ultimately speaking, making these distinctions, if done improperly, uh, only serves their, you know, at least their primary, their, their, their ultimate goal really depends on like how far right they actually are. It'd be anywhere from like, 
you know, a Muslim ban to like, or to like a white Nate to like, to like literally genocide. But, you know, I think that you lay out their primary goal pretty explicitly in your piece, which is that they're, that what they're working on right now is essentially just laundering neo-reactionary, neo-fascist talking points into mainstream circles in order to normalize them, right? And they have a variety of mechanisms for doing that. Yeah. When the alt-right was essentially born back in 2008, Paul Gottfried, the main political theorist who gave the speech in 2008 that gave birth to the term, he basically said they needed to do this because they don't have material resources. And the the way a political movement operates without material resources is by infiltration. Um, infiltration and then seizing upon those institutions for their own good. Um, and they're doing that. I mean, I checked on Twitter and like at, at, right after the piece came out and there were a bunch of alt-right guys saying like, including I think Richard Spencer was saying this, oh no, no, we never wanted to do that. That was never happening. We were just guys drinking beers in an apartment. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> A. Um, B, you've said completely the opposite. Well, yeah, I agree. I mean, from my perspective, Richard Spencer's platform was largely a result of the novelty or the perceived novelty of somebody saying the kinds of things he was saying, but not having a swastika tattooed to their Exactly. Forehead, right. I think that, you know, like the, the, the dapper Nazi trend was one born out of an unfamiliarity with Nazism and fascism that people who didn't know better, but were who were still tasked with covering these people, um were experiencing like it was a kind of liberal voyeurism with uh what what they considered within liberal circles to be like taboo and you know the taboo racism the taboo bigotry the taboo uh sexism in some ways um but it being taboo was more of like a symbolic thing like they didn't feel threatened by richard spencer they didn't feel threatened by the existence of a resurgence of that form of neo-nazism because they don't necessarily experience it that way so for them it was more of a curiosity thing like how many every every i think one of friend of mine called them diner nazi diner nazi interviews because it was every interview was like some random reporter from vice no offense i guess uh going to like an ihop or a denny's or a waffle house to sit across from like the leader of the local chapter of some bullshit titles like uh right to free speech campus organization to hear about their ideas but they never had any real pushback for them they never had any real historical context or like ideological context to ground them in it was mostly just like Richard Spencer going like well I kind of think people from Africa are subhuman and I have this you know and I've been reading a lot of uh, you know 1940s eugenics texts to emphasize this point and people are like whoa you don't really believe that do you and he's like yeah dumbass I just <laughs> of course I do like, and they're like whoa like and like that just showed I mean it really just demonstrated like racism like that doesn't exist in their world and they had no real context for it especially when it is not espoused by somebody who for them looks like what a racist looks like we i think we have a, a cultural picture of like what a racist looks like and he didn't look like one he just looked like some he looked like you're like i mean not my friend's brother but he looked like you know he looked like some white he was just some white dude like he was a white dude in a, a suit that was one size too small it was like uh you know with his, uh, his you know a, a normalish haircut and he was saying racist shit and so like there was this kind of weird eccentricity to it for them but i think anyone familiar with like and you study russia as well you know anyone who's familiar with like the rise of neo-fascism in europe and in parts of eurasia that's not normal that's not weird yeah. at all 
<laughs> it's just like that's just like that's what they do now because they kind of know and like this is like this is why you know Richard Spencer for you know I don't think he's smart I think he again like a dumbass neo-fascist he's smart enough to know that the center has this weird kind of blind spot for that like there are just so many ways to kind of disguise yourself from their understanding of what racism and Nazism and fascism and bigotry are and some of them are just entirely performative and it's like oh I, I just put on a suit I don't like I don't say the N word out loud and so you see people like Milo or Richard Spencer who were at some point going on national television to talk about their ideas and having like glowing profiles and like in novelty like be replaced with like more complex versions of the same ideas I would point to like some members of the IDW who flirt with neo-fascism too but like there's never a way for them to go back I mean the only way that they ever could go back is really to just completely change their beliefs I mean you could find a way to like change the grift I guess um but they won't do that. I think the tell the the telling thing, uh, especially among the so-called all right at this point, is that the I hate to say these these smart ones, uh, but the I guess savvy is probably a better word. Um, are really just realizing that they can't operate in this world, so they just have to do their own thing. Um, and they have to kind of create their own, not necessarily like their little white ethno state per se, but they have to create their own institutions and create their own kind of agencies to operate. Um, and function because everything else they try and do is just going to be stopped. Um, or they get really, really, really savvy and like actually manage to play a long game. I think to a certain extent, like what John Elliott was doing, um, where they do manage to keep their beliefs hidden for such a long time that they can operate within these institutions relatively well. But even then, at some point, you're always still risking the possibility of being outed. A lot of times when we talk about gateways to the far right, gateways to, you know, ending up, you know, espousing like real, like, like reactionary, dangerous ideas. We, I, I, for me online, I see a lot of it as like, oh, like irony is the main tool of the far right. And I'm like, no, not really. I was like, irony is one tool of the far right, but really irony has been, you know, irony, satire, couching it as jokes has been a lot less successful than just like couching it in the veil of professionalism, you know, couching it in the veil of like intellectual rigor and the veil of like media kind of punditry when what their ideas are talking about are things that we've already litigated but they just, they've just found new ways to describe them the people who are not as capable or media savvy or historically um literate in the nature of fascism and the ideas of fascism at the like the core as opposed to like the you know german nazi state to focus on uh, again, just getting people to take the first step in that direction. So I, I again, I, I I think that we've we haven't done a good enough job. No, not we. I do a great job. I do a great job of everything personally. So do you? Well, though. So you. That's, that's why you're on the show. Uh, I, th- I think we haven't done a good enough job of not only like exploring and explaining and educating the population uh, of like what fascism is, what white nationalism is, what ethno nationalism is, and like the and like and how it's you know how what you people remember from their their like little segment of history class in high school and in a Nazi state, it was just a manifestation or rather a synthesis of fascist ideas in the aesthetics of German, you know, essentially the German state in the, in the late, the early 20th century. Um, but we have 
having kind of dismantled the, or unpacked, or whatever you want to call it, the underlying core concepts that led to it, right? Where like we're, we've seen we've seen a resurgence of race science, like race science is back, and it's not just back in the Daily Caller. Like there, like people are still writing about the fucking bell curve in mainstream publications as though it's a real thing that people really still, like, as though it's a real thing that hasn't been disproved a hundred times. And also that there was a book that was basically funded by a racist eugenicist organization. At least one chapter, one or two chapters. Um, before anyone tries to sue me, it wasn't the entire book that didn't receive funding from a particular racist institution. It was only one or two chapters. But they were the worst chapters. I mean, like, uh, I think Charles Murray is actually a really good example of this because, like, he's still around and he's still doing, like, his um, various tours about talking about Trump and how he understands why people voted for Trump. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, of course, he fits into all of this. They love him. They love him, though, and I think they love him not because, you know, he gives an ironic air to, he's not, he's very earnest, really, <laughs> and if you consider, like, the opposite of irony to be earnestness, like, you know, he's very earnest, it's just he gives a pseudoscientific veneer to what are essentially, you know, racist, but, like, really... Uh, ir- not irrational, but like a scientific ideas like that race is biological and that IQ is a reasonable metric for success in society, even though even in the book itself, the bell curve itself, like which again has been disproven hundreds of times, but people still demand that you like litigate it over and over again, because essentially, you know, by never tackling the underlying ideas of eugenics that were founded in America in the American School of Anthropology, really, um, like people still believe these sort of core concepts that were utilized by the Nazi state. So people still demand that you, you know, relitigate race science and that if you can't relitigate race science at the drop of a hat, because to be fair, none of us are learning race science anymore. And like, we've kind of moved past that in terms of curriculum. Like if you can't litigate the minutia of race science, you're not capable of dismissing Charles Murray, even though society moved past him 30 years ago, we moved past that literally. So, uh, but he couches it in this kind of veneer of pseudoscience and you have many other far-right figures like uh, Richard Spencer who rely on a pseudo kind of alt-history take about the Judeo-Christian values in Western civilization in this sort of imagined Europe where like white people were all working together and living in harmony uh, before, you know, the influx of migrants. I'm like, I remember I didn't, I, I was a history major like the world's worst history major but if I remember one thing about European history is like those motherfuckers hate each other it's like even even in the rise of eugenics like the rise of like race science it's like a large part of race science that was lost is that like like fucking french people thought that their skull shape was different than than fucking uh people from britain and they they would fight over whether that made them smarter or dumber too like they're like that kind of those elements have been kind of erased from this to create this kind of weird all historical take where like europe was one united people uh before the influx of migrants in and to cre- again, to create this kind of biological narrative of, of race that has, again, and some people still rely on race science, but some of the far right, as you mentioned as well, have become more uh, focused on like disguising what is race science in the language of culture. Like, hey, you know, it's not that I hate people because they're black or I hate black people because they're genetically inferior. It's because they tend towards not respecting the Protestant work ethic. And that's why they are poor and they are living in, you know, a state of mal distribution of resources broadly or like a huntingtonian class of civilization like the reason why we can't have all these somalian migrants in the city and minnesota 
um, is because these two civilizations, they just can't mesh. And ergo, we have to stop immigration. I mean, yeah, I feel like Huntington has really gone to come back. <laughs> well, I heard from a very reliable source, Stefan Molyneux, that you can't, that, that the races are so different that you can't even transplant organs from black to white people without them going into some sort of weird septic shock. They, they, they just fucking seize up and go into animals. true. I saw, I saw that on House once. <laughs> Hugh Laurie follows me on Twitter. Oh, that's so cool. That's so fucking weird. I have no idea. He follows like 12 people. And like, I'm one of them. Like, I'm like, I'm, I'm just waiting for the day. I followed him back because like he's Dr. House. So what the fuck am I supposed to do? I'm like, I'm not immune to like, I watched House for like 12 seasons. I'm not immune to that shit. It'd be like if Jensen Ackles followed me. I'd be like, oh, okay, well, guess I got to follow this guy back. And then like one day I'm, he's going to see one of my tweets and be like, why do I follow this person again? <laughs> Hopefully, I, I hope he never unfollows you. Every day, I'm trying to work up the courage to get him to come on this fucking podcast. I don't know what I would talk to him about. I don't really know much about Hugh Laurie outside of the fact that he's like kind of like an all-around artist and British person. But like, I mean, really, Hugh Laurie was like the Benedict Cumberbatch before Benedict Cumberbatch became Benedict Cumberbatch. If you think about it that way. But yeah. like, I don't know what I, would, what I would talk to him about. I, I don't know anything about his politics. I just, I would just ask him about like, you know, lupus and shit. <laughs> What, what, what's it like being the guy who thinks that everyone has lupus, but it's never lupus? It's never lupus, except for that one time it was lupus, which, and I mean, I think that everyone, much like everyone knows the difference between ophibophilia and pedophilia, um, everyone knows that lupus is like an autoimmune disease that, because they had to look it up after every, like, at least 20 episodes of House mentioned it. <laughs> like, let's talk about your, like, your alt-right piece a little bit more. Like, what are some other broad takeaways that people, you know, know about your examination of these email leaks? I think probably one big takeaway that I thought was pretty interesting is just how so many people really wanted to think of the alt-right as just being like this movement that was only on the inter internet that was really only on 4chan um when some of the people who were most effective uh and kind of pushing its message were in actual institutions um and were thinking about institutions like the guys on 4chan who were posting like dumbass pepe memes of like rare pepe like Goebbels style or something um they're not the ones who are thinking about this but also like their impact i think when you look at the rise of the alt right so to speak um was definitely overstated uh at the end of the day the people who really did matter were people in dc were people in new york um were people i guess where bennett now is california uh, who were thinking about how to get their message across in mainstream media or mainstream think tank. I mean, that, I think that's... The alt-right, in my opinion, was both overstated, but then underappreciated at the same time. Like, I, I think that the alt-right was a good example of, you know, the core of what the modern far-right, even the modern normal conservative is preoccupied like what like what their main albatross is psychologically right which is that like they are state they still can't buy respect <laughs> like they might control the police they might control the military they might control the presidency the supreme court most most uh, parts of government but like there is still this perception that they are the butt of a uh, joke cultural and so a large part of that was i think in my opinion was trying to infiltrate those institutions to be more yeah. reflective of what they consider to be far-right culture in a way that it, it that you know again the far the left thinks that the things that's funny because we know what these from our perspective these institutions are all incredibly conservative but from theirs it's like these minor discrepancies or these minor uh hegemonic losses that they sustained in the culture war are things that they are heavily obsessed with. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think that's kind of why they've basically been so, I mean, they knew they would be successful was because it was laying right there for them. And conservatives, much to their detriment, weren't thinking about it. They still find them, like they're like in their 50s, something like the David Brooks, not the one you mentioned in the article, but the D. David Brooks and like Brett Stevens is of the world. Like, despite being damn near 70 years old, are still concerned with this perception that they are not respected on college campuses by freshmen. And so they found themselves amenable to the message of the far right because the far, I mean, the far, the far right, but the, the, um, the, the alt-right, because the alt-right was promising to at least go garner a level of cultural respect for them that they perceive themselves lacking. So yeah, like they might have found them to be crass, weird, fucked up, or a little bit too racist or whatever. Or like they, they might have not understood their memes, but the idea that they were going to make cool to be a conservative again, you know, they were going to like infiltrate these institutions, like, you know, campus, etc. Even though we know, again, that like the idea of like the college campus as being this bastion against free speech is kind of just like the modern retelling of old like liberal Jewish professors are indoctrinated your youth narrative that's been around again since the Reagan era but like I think that was very seductive to uh due to the implicitly not sort of self-actualized racist crowd who consider themselves to be like the deep thinker never trumper conservatives like that this movement was their version like their sort of punch back at the culture yeah yeah exactly but yeah, you know what? I think we have a lot of, we talked about a lot of great stuff here, a lot of really interesting stuff, gave people a lot to think about, or maybe nothing at all. Maybe they weren't listening at all. That's not, that's not my problem. You know, frankly, I'm just here. For, I'm just here because I enjoy having the time with people. So why don't we close out by you telling people where they can keep up with your work? Yeah. Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at Hannah Gaze. That's G-A-I-S. Um, or I also have a website that I occasionally update with uh, clips and such. Um, and yeah, I'm now at the Southern Poverty Law Center, too. So but I just started. So I haven't really done that much yet. I, I but stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> I, I don't want to I don't want to, you know, you know, one up. You, I'm at the Northern Poverty Law Center. You know what? Fuck that. That was a terrible joke. I'm going to uh, I'm going to link all I'm going to link all of um I, I turned I turned 28 I, mean, I just became a fucking boomer immediately I'm like yeah 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 well, I'm two years older than you, and it's I. It's not a contest. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a contest. Fair, fair. It's not a contest, Miss Gaze. I'm the one doing the interview. Anyway, I'm going to link all that stuff in the description. So if you were kind of phasing out after I made that terrible joke, you won't have to look too far or re expose yourself to it. Uh, it'll all be in the description. But thank you so much for joining me, Hannah. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. It was great to talk to you, too. And I appreciate all of you listeners. That's why I appreciate it. I love all of you.
Yeah. 